0: When we asked today's guest to join us on the TechEd podcast, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. He is the superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools in the state of Minnesota. He leads a district where 125 languages are spoken at home, where he has an 80% diverse population among his students. How do you reach parents? How do you reach families? These are all the challenges that he deals with, and we expected... Joe Gothard, the superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools, to tell us all about that. We got that and more. It was an incredibly unfiltered discussion in which he didn't hold back about his thoughts on urban education, on what needs to change to move it forward. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. So let's just begin, Dr. Gothard, by welcoming you to the Tech Ed Podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: We're glad to have you here. We're going to talk initially about St. Paul Public Schools, about your students, how many district schools, the the size of your population, and so on. Help us understand your district a little bit better.
1: Yeah, we're one of Minnesota's largest school districts, so 35,000 students, about 6,000 staff. Uh, We're also one of the most diverse school districts in the state. 79% of our students identify uh, by race other than white. We have a large Asian population, specifically Hmong, followed by Black, Hispanic, multiracial, and American Indian. And we're also home to one of the largest Hmong populations in the United States, and second for Somali population behind Washington, DC. So it is very much a global uh, school district packed into the 125 languages spoken at home. In the district and the largest are Hmong, Somali, Spanish, Karen, are the largest uh, languages represented other than English in the district. We have 60 to 70 schools, and while we really want to focus and strengthen our community schools, we also have uh, programs like International Baccalaureate, Montessori, aerospace, STEM, language immersion, special education sites, and non-traditional programs, including evening school and adult education. I mean, we are a birth to beyond uh, high school uh, district, and, and we serve the needs of our community in um, incredible ways. We're also the only school district in Minnesota that offers 100% of voluntary pre-kindergarten full-time. Uh, so there is no longer a half-day option. It is a full-time program for students in our district. And we're also the capital city of Minnesota, proud of that. And in 2017, uh, Mayor Melvin Carter became the city's first black mayor and a great partner, a central high school graduate, and a, just a wonderful partner of, of the educators and students and families in our district. And I think it's important to last say that we do sit on traditional Dakota land. It is a place where the Mississippi and Minnesota River, as I'm, I can almost see it from my office, come together in that exact area is called Badote. And it's a sacred place of the Dakota people who were the first people of the region.
0: So an incredibly diverse school district, diverse region in terms of the geography, in terms of the individuals that have inhabited that area over hundreds and hundreds of years, diverse in terms of the populations that you're reaching, 79% identifying as something other than white and 125 languages. Wow, that that really kind of sends that message home. For me, it's also an urban environment. As you know, I visited the Twin Cities. I've spent plenty of time in St. Paul. Some might say we're at a bit of a tipping point for urban education here in the United States and that people are waking up to the fact that we can and we should be doing things in a little bit different way. Do you agree with the premise that people are starting to wake up to this? And if so, why?
1: I, I do. And I, and I think the, you know, the last 20 months, let's face it, you know March 14th, 2020, and I remember these dates just like they were yesterday. That is the Saturday that I learned from our commissioner of education that the governor was going to host a call with us on that Sunday, the 15th, to discuss COVID-19 before we were using that word in every sentence. And, you know, that for the first time in my career, you know, 27 years now in, in public education was by far the greatest unknown that I had to leap into as a person, as a professional, as a leader and say, we're going to be okay. And we're going to figure out a way to do this. Uh, so I think that right there presented a real challenge for us. I mean, knowing that we have you know 70% of our students qualify for free and reduced price meals, the three stipulations of the peacetime orders at that time were for us to provide essential childcare, families of essential workers, uh, for us to make sure we were providing meals to all of our students and to provide a distance learning education. So, when you think about the economics involved in those three feats, it was incredible to do that in a pandemic. But it also showed for us what many have known for years the incredible divides in how families and children are able to access their education. I think the other biggest thing that we learned is the adults in, in education. I mean, if we look at the average age or generation of teachers today, And this is by no fault of of our teachers. Many of them were not born with a device in hand. I was talking to a staff member this week and she was sharing with me, the, the mother of two teenagers, the idea of digital natives versus digital immigrants. This is something that we've had to encounter and try to learn to keep up or to keep ahead. Our children today for the last 10, 15, 20 years, very much born with that in mind. And the idea that we are a linear sequential society if you look at some ages, and I'm sure there's a cutoff, our kids today are getting so much information from so many different sources at the same time that their brains are wired very differently. You know, they're able to store and sort and analyze information in ways that we're not programmed to program for them in in many of their classes. And I think it really does factor into the engagement level for learning today. Again, not saying that the way we're doing it is wrong, What I am saying is it's very different from a meaningful and relevant learning that I think our kids are ready for and wishing for today. Uh, So I think those are things that we have to work on without a doubt.
0: Yeah, that digital native observation is really interesting to me. We see a number of districts all over the Midwest, all over the United States, adopting things like teaching students how to program robots, for instance. And a lot of times people in industry will say, you know, is it really possible to teach a sophomore in high school how to program a robot. And the the answer is that they find it a lot easier than in some cases the adults in the room, because they're just so fearless when it comes to technology, they'll dive right in and they'll, they'll learn something. You know, I've got a, my oldest child is actually in his early twenties now. And we have this really interesting cutoff where all of our photographs of him until he was about five or six, maybe seven years old are like the old fashioned, you know, you took them on an old fashioned camera. You had them developed at the convenience store at the drugstore or what have you. And then all of a sudden, there's this cutoff where everything after that is digital. And we forget sometimes that certainly the students that are going through their high school careers now and all the students that come after them, they are those digital natives. That technology comes really, really natural to them, uh, which provides a challenge, to your point, uh, in terms of preparing education to meet that digital generation. And we know that we have to change. But there's certainly challenges to making change. And when you think about making changes in an urban education environment, addressing some of those issues you discussed in your last answer, what are some of those challenges that you run into in terms of making change?
1: Well, one, and if I could just back up just a a moment to to elaborate a little bit more, because I think your point, your example of the programming the robot is a really good one. And again, in a traditional way, we might think of the conveyor belt model to achieve at creating that robot and programming that robot, right? It's linear. And today, my argument would be that there are so many skills that are necessary for our students to create the automation that builds the robot, that programs the robot. I mean, that's how our kids are thinking today. They're looking at the world and they want to do it differently. They want to do it together and they want to have some skin in the game. They want to say that my efforts are producing, you know, whatever the product might be. So I think that's really important. I also think that teaching our students how to read and write only scratches the surface of, of truly creating well-rounded educational opportunities for, for students and the skills that allow students to apply reading and writing are so important today as well. And again, I think we really have to rely on our school system to, to try to do that. I many times have talked about the American high school experience and, and I did this in my previous superintendency post where we were looking at how can we create a more future uh, relevant district? And one of our assistants broke down the high school graduation requirements from 1950 by decade to the present time. And what we learned was my hypothesis, that it hasn't really changed much. The terms used to describe the graduation requirements might've changed, but essentially they really haven't. And if you look at state standards as well, Um, They just haven't changed very much. And when you look at the world around us, I continue to hear the workforce skill gap and the workforce people gap is growing. I also hear higher education institutions say that students aren't ready. So it tells me that they are trying to and are continuing to adapt and grow in ways that the K-12 system, especially the high school experience, hasn't. And that's been a great challenge for me and in, in both districts I've led here. We've really tried to embrace that idea of how can we look at this in a way that prepares students for a world that typically our, our system hasn't.
0: It is interesting that the uh, going back to the 50s, I mean, I guess I didn't appreciate the fact that we haven't necessarily changed high school education much in terms of expectations of outcomes. And boy, that would be 60, 70 years. That's absolutely incredible. You know, I, coming to education later in life, I spent most of my career in manufacturing and I've been on the education side for you know maybe five, six years now. As you can imagine, I spent a lot of time on YouTube and, and online looking up words I've never heard before, trying to find acronyms that I'm not familiar with that everybody else seems to be. And I was watching a TED Talk not too long ago in which the individual delivering the talk said, what kind of an education system boils your entire success down to a three-hour exam that you take your junior year of high school that determines you know which college you get to go to it? That really woke me up to, man, there's some some really interesting ways that we can evolve in the world of education and some interesting changes that we can make. Again, coming back to this whole idea of challenges, uh, you have a really unique perspective as superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools. What are some of the challenges that you see facing SPPS, as it's commonly called, that you see from your unique perspective that others may not see?
1: Yeah, I think there are many. I mean, right now we're engaged in a process in which, I mean, our decline in enrollment over years is leading to us trying to spread out our resources in ways that just aren't effective. We have many small schools that aren't able to generate the kind of revenue and the amount of staffing that are really necessary to create that well-rounded experience that's preparing students for their next steps in life. So we have to have the dreaded conversation about school closure and combining schools. And it's, it's really difficult. And I think the general public might see that this is announced as a decision, a decree or to have the board uh, deliberate and make a decision, and not understanding the work that's done behind it to really use data to analyze our present level of both performance and you know, how we're uh, supporting and resourcing our schools. And, and I think that can be really challenging to explain to the community you know, the process in a way that's going to make them raise their hand and say, yes, close my school, is really challenging.
0: I grew up in a school district where when we were in seventh grade, they closed one of the three middle schools in our district. And those students all came over to my school. I was at the school that got to survive. And and we had all these other students that came over from this other school. There's two things. My wife and I just drove by that school about two weeks ago when I was reminiscing about that. I could still remember which kids were Hawthorne kids and which kids were Longfellow kids, which provides a little bit of a You know, a reminder of how some ways disruptive that can be to an individual's life. But I also think about all the friendships that resulted and the pathways that these students ended up on that they may never have been on had their school not closed in the way that it did. So you never know as you're thinking through those challenges what opportunities you're creating for those students. And I know that that is at the heart of uh, the decisions you're making, even though they're tough decisions.
1: Definitely. And I think that, you know, again, right now, the emotion of it to talk about that at the heart of it, you know, I can understand the hurt I shared last night in a virtual meeting how grew up around the corner from my elementary school. Very much, I, I identify with it in terms of my youth, my childhood. At the same time, I've got to try to illustrate to this community how sometimes an addition by subtraction mentality has to lead to these recommendations and decisions of saying that it's going to be better on the other side of this. Here's how, here's why. The hard part is unless that's you know in your hand, you're able to observe it. It can be really hard for many folks, just about all folks, to really see uh, what that future might be. But I, I would agree that I think our best days can be ahead of us when we plan and we do this together.
0: And in the end, that's what leadership is all about. It's having vision and it's having the wherewithal and the ability to make those tough decisions and advocate for those decisions, even though not everybody may may agree with those decisions. So credit to you for that leadership, your thoughtful way in which you're you're going about addressing the challenges facing your district. Speaking of those challenges, and I want to go back to Again, one of your previous answers, when you talked about the diversity in your district, 79% of your students, a non-white population, 125 languages spoken at home for your students. Let's turn our talk now to your approach to systemic equity. SPPS achieves, which is your strategic plan for 2018 to 2022, added systemic equity as a new focus area in the year 2021. Tell us about that.
1: There's some real learning experiences that that I continue to have, you know, as a as a leader who does try to truly focus on having a growth mindset, meaning I don't have all the information, but I'm willing to be adaptive and responsive to the needs of our community. Our strategic plan was based on a framework that the board approved back in 2018. At the heart of it was to increase long-term student outcomes specifically in closing gaps between students who for years have been underserved, historically underserved in our school district and school districts around the state and country for that matter. And The assumption that I think I made as a leader is that in order to close these gaps, that equity is found everywhere in the district, which it is and it should be, but it wasn't a true focused area of the plan. And, you know, I feel like one thing that we left out was having that systemic equity vision that encapsulates the entire plan. So we did add that, you know, right before the pandemic or right during the pandemic for our our next focus area of our strategic plan, we added a fifth focus area of of systemic equity. And for me, we can learn about equity. We can learn about our history. We can learn about all the data points that lead us to say that students are not served in the same way and don't achieve at the same levels in the district. And that's many times where equity stops. and, And I can say that in many of the schools and and districts I've worked in, that's been the case. Systemic equity is identifying inequities, removing them, articulating uh, what steps you're going to take and recommendations you're going to to make to truly make them better and to have that be part of our day-to-day operations in in the school district. And to me, it it gives permission, if you will, for us to be unapologetic around being observers of inequities and doing something about it right away. And it doesn't have to be you know, written in the goal in your September school improvement plan, it should be written as part of what you do every single day in making sure that we're looking at opportunities to remove barriers and inequities that are preventing children and families from accessing an education in the way that's going to lead to improve long-term student outcomes.
0: You know, I love the words, give yourself permission. I've got a really good friend who used to teach art at the University of Chicago, and that was where he started with all of his art students, believe it or not, which is, you know, give yourself permission to see things in a different way, give yourself a permission to maybe step out of the status quo. And certainly that's what you're attempting to do with your systemic equity approach to SPPS achieves. What are some specific initiatives or objectives or an example of some of the things you're doing to promote this effort?
1: We have an office of equity. And we have to make sure that our work is cross-functional. As I've said many times to anyone who will listen in our district, equity work is not an office, a place, or a person. It is really found in all of us. I mean, If we want our organization, especially in a district that has 80% diverse, and and many would say our students who classifies white need equity work just as much, looking at the polarized uh, world that we live in today, it really should be at the lead of everything that we do. We should always be looking at ways to help students in an individual way, in a group way, be successful. So one of the first ways that we're rolling this out is we are in the process right now of embedding a graduation requirement for critical ethnic studies to be a course that all sophomores will take uh, that would be effective first for the class of 2025. Um, Critical ethnic studies is a way for students to understand who they are as individuals and to see where their place in society, through their history, through their lived experiences, how that is intersected with their education, with their community. Um, and it is, a, we had a report out last week at, at one of our board meetings. It was a highlight of mine and, you know, my fifth year here now, you know, just hearing how one of our educators is working with her class and piloting, you know, what will become a graduation requirement for our district. We're also providing all of our teachers and administrators resources and time. One of our strategic focus areas is to have a culturally relevant and effective instructional setting for all of our students. So again, looking at how can we have ethnic studies not just be a course in a moment in time, how can it be the way that we look at all of our students from the moment they enter our school district, knowing that they bring unique assets, unique experiences and fold that into the educational experience. Too many times we open the doors and the mold is there and students either fit in it or they don't. I am saying that our mold needs to be adaptive and it needs to be adaptive in an an equitable way. And certainly in a way that recognizes and builds upon prior lived experiences and historical experiences that our students have faced. Sometimes that is unpacking trauma that students have experienced. And, you know, we have a large refugee community, students who are newcomers to to our country, to the American school system. And there are, you know, unique challenges and ways that we're meeting the needs of families and students who are in those situations. And then right here in our own community, you know, we are the the heart of the I-94 project from the the cut through St. Paul and into Minneapolis. And in doing so, destroying the Rondo community, a Black-owned and Black uh, residential area in St. Paul that still today has repercussions in, in terms of how folks feel about our city and about decisions that have been made by elected officials and by government officials.
0: You know, it's interesting. We have the same thing going on in my home city of Milwaukee, where we look back at whether it was the interstate, what happened to the African-American commercial district in, in downtown Milwaukee and uh, your urban renewal, restricted zoning. I mean, you just need the list goes on and on and the repercussions certainly continue to last well into this century. Unfortunately, and credit to you for working on the initiative. You know, one of the things that we're all living through In real time right now is this whole relationship between education and families, school boards and parents. I mean, we're seeing that unfold across the country. Like I said, in real time, all we have to do is turn our our TVs on. It's a hot topic. Is this initiative that we're talking about here limited to the classroom or how have you involved parents and and families in the decisions and the efforts?
1: First, we have to do a better job of it. So I I would say, yes, predominantly it is. Obviously, we have our students for a, a finite amount of time and their families for even smaller But when I look at it, we are in a city right now, thanks to the leadership of Mayor Melvin Carter, every child born in St. Paul gets a $50 college savings account. Um, College Bound St. Paul is the name of that program. So I've been able to frame this in a way that that is the contract to this entire community, that every baby born in the city is worthy to have opportunities for their future. And it's up to us. And when I say us, I mean everyone who touches two feet down in this community, whether you live here, work here, or live here and work here, um, to make sure that we're doing our part in, in helping support our children, uh, because we know we want each of them to have a successful future. So in doing that, it's, for me, been a way to really look at this as a two-generational approach. Certainly, we want all of our children to go on and have opportunities. And I'm not saying everyone has to go to college, but I do think the preparation and that choice is really important. And I think many of our families have not had that experience either. So we have to really look at educating families on how to support children for their futures as well. So one of the initiatives that we have in our district is a personal learning plan. Now that isn't new, and that isn't something that will shock the audience as as they hear this. Here's the difference though. In my education, I think I was 16 years old before I took a career Interesting, you know, exam or the CAPS test, I believe it was called back in the 1980s. Two-thirds of my education was over. Two-thirds of it was done. We right now are asking our kindergarten students to begin filling out their personal learning plan. We want to find out what the assets, talents, dreams of our students are again, so that we can adapt our school district to the unique sets of assets that each child brings, because each of them does. If you're not good in writing or reading, there is something that you're good at. And we have to build on that instead of always looking at how do we fix deficits. And to me, that's why I'm championing this PLP work, the personalized learning plan work that we're doing. And I think it could redefine our entire district for the future.
0: And we're going to dive into that PLP work in just a moment. I want to reflect on a couple of the things that you just said. You know, the first one is this whole idea of when do we get an opportunity to think about our career readiness and our career opportunities. And, and when do we think about what it is that we want to do long-term? I learned a lesson several years ago, actually, from one of your neighbors, a gentleman by the name of Brad Thorpe, who teaches at Hennepin Community College. And Brad had done a study as part of his master's thesis, where he looked at how students make their decisions about which careers they want to explore. one of the things that he found that I just always found fascinating was especially girls will make decisions about career choices as early as middle school. And sometimes in some cases, even sooner than that. And he said, it's not so much that they decide what they want to do, but they start turning off to certain career choices and thinking that those are those choices aren't for them. So really fascinating. I think many students in in our generation had that same experience where you really didn't think about it until you were a sophomore or junior in high school. And it is so very important to start thinking about it sooner. I've got a management philosophy having spent years in in corporate leadership with manufacturing companies that really plays right into the second part of your answer, which is one of the jobs of a leader isn't so much to figure out what the team isn't doing well and have them do it better, but it's to figure out where those natural talents and tendencies are, because we're all born with a handful of them, and then try to create career opportunities for people that are completely aligned with what it is that they're interested in, what they enjoy doing, which, by the way, is typically what they're going to excel at as well. So uh, I think our, our thinking in two different worlds, education and manufacturing, very, very well aligned in that regard. I want to talk now about the cost of, you know, there's certainly a cost of adding systemic equity, a cost of SPPS achieves, but there's a cost to not doing these things as well. For other districts, especially urban districts across the United States that are in similar circumstances as St. Paul Public Schools, what do you think is the cost of not implementing systemic equity?
1: When you think about, um, and you can read about any social determinant of health in your community, and you will always find a tie to education in there. And many of these data are not pleasant to look at. And you can look at education experiences and education levels of folks who are incarcerated. You know, folks who are caught in the criminal justice system. you can look at wage earning, you can look at unemployment, uh, you can look at health in general. And many of that goes back to education. It is such an important civil right that we are you know that we're designing the, the very best of an educational system that allows every person to be successful. And that's why it's important to me uh, to make sure that our students all the way through our entire system feel like they have an identity. I think too many times identity of students is a percentage or proficiency. And when you think about the lead story in education, often it's about that. And it's not about the individual. It's not about the the talents and the skills that children bring. It's not about asking students to think critically about the climate or about the murder of George Floyd, which taught us all amazing, amazing things. When you hear 15-year-olds talk about George Floyd versus 55-year-olds talk about George Floyd, you're in two different worlds. And it just tells me that our youth of today have a lot of ways that they feel uh, about their society, about their education. And, you know, I just want us to be as responsive as possible. And in doing that, it is very much an equity effort, you know, to really look at who our students are today and, and their experiences and make sure that they can have their identity and their education and they're simultaneous. It's not one or the other. We don't ask students to go through the school doors and shed who they are to fit into the school. In fact, it should be just the opposite. Who they are should shine and it should show up in their curriculum. It should show up in what I hear often as the number one issue in equity, hire more teachers who look like their students. And especially in this community, that's really important for us. I've told many people, if you wanna look at where diverse teachers are, we don't have to leave the state, go into any of our classrooms. And they're the future teachers who could live and lead right in this district. Exactly right.
0: We promised you a candid discussion with Joe Gothard, superintendent of St. Paul Public Schools, and we got one, but we didn't finish there. Join us next week for another episode, the follow-up episode to this one, in which Dr. Gothard talks to us about the 12-hour school day. Are our students ready to be in the classroom, in the school, and enjoying experiences around their education 12 hours a day? Find out next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.